1: This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of Deep State Radio. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you today from Cambridge, Massachusetts, where I'm going to be spending a lot of time over the next year, because my wife is a fellow here. We rented a 300-year-old house, which I think is haunted. And I think that will add enormously to our upcoming podcast. We are joined today by, because it's Thursday, the end of the week, Ryan Goodman of NYU Law School and Just Security. How are you today, Ryan?
2: I'm okay, David. Thanks.
1: That enthusiasm that Ryan brings to this, We will continue to get in the future, but not every week. This is Ryan's last week as a regular on this. Why is that, Ryan? Is it something we said? Is it Kavita? (laughs) Ryan has got a expanded portfolio of amazing things to do at NYU. So he will be doing those things, but we'll be luring him back on a regular basis. Of course, uh, every week we will continue to be ably Co-hosted by the brilliant Dr. Kavita Patel of Brookings and a lot of television recently. How are you, Kavita?
0: I'm good. I'm nowhere near as upwardly mobile as Ryan, so you've got me for the unforeseeable future. So that's the sorry
1: <laughs> coming coming from somebody who was like on television 24 hours a day. I find that hard <laughs> to believe. But uh, in any event, here you know we are also joined by another friend and regular contributor on. Television shows from coast to coast. The uh, smart and courageous Olivia Troy, formerly of the former guy's administration, and now a noted truth teller. And I, I'm going to begin perhaps in a in an unexpected place, and then we'll we'll go to a bunch of things that that are going on at the moment. But Olivia, I I knew you were coming, and I was thinking of you because I don't know that everybody knows your full story but i know that you were in baghdad in the days after we went in there uh and then you've spent a lot of time on the ground dealing with high security threats dealing with people behind kind of thing that happened today in kabul today's thursday we're recording this and i'm wondering what your reaction to that is in the context of our having faced these things now for 20 years?
3: Yeah, I think it's been a long two decades, is what I'll say, David. I think, you know, I've been watching a lot of the commentary the past, I guess, two weeks now, or however long it's been. I feel like it's been a long, long process with what we're watching happen in Afghanistan. And it's been heartbreaking. And I think, you know, there'll be a lot of Blame to be placed to go around, but I think it's just it's a really complicated scenario there that has been, I think, in the making for 20 years now. And you know, I've been there when um, you know I am worried about the security situation, especially now that we've had this bombing and people have gotten hurt. I think they've confirmed killed, unfortunately, and that is I don't see the situation getting any better. I do think that President Biden is a really tough spot right now, but look, I have complete faith in our military commanders and everything that they're doing there right now. But, you know, we've got, they've got a lot of enemies on the ground right now. I mean, there's the Taliban and, um, you know, I don't know how strong they'll hold, but I do know that whatever the Trump administration negotiated behind the scenes, we don't have any idea of what that means for whatever the deal was now. And, and then all of the other groups that are obviously operating there that are going to make the situation that much more complicated, whether it's ISIS and other terrorist groups that are just sort of going to make this challenging um, outside of the Taliban. So I think when you have a complicated scenario like this, where you're trying to evacuate people, you're trying to evacuate Americans, you're trying to evacuate u s. Afghan allies who have been on the ground with us that I'm obviously very passionate about because I've worked with allies on the ground in the past, both in Iraq and Afghanistan, and my heart is is with them because they are, in my eyes, they were there in the trenches with us side by side for so long. And I think about their families, and I think about them, and I think about how they become part of your own family as well, because they're kind of an extension of you when you're traveling around. And in these places, and you really get to know them on a human level. And a lot of the time, they, they protect you. I can't tell you the number of times where they worked with our security team. I worked for Paul Bremer. We traveled around Baghdad. And a lot of the time, it was some of the security forces there and some of the translators who really actually gave us a heads up when there was an IED up ahead on the road. And they would go scout it out. And those are true, you know, real world stories of, of the courage of many of these individuals in these countries and at great risk because their lives are threatened every single day. And I'm, I'm worried.
1: We'll follow up on that. I just want to get everybody else's reaction too, Ryan. I seem to recall that the president of the United States, the former president said that we had defeated ISIS and they no longer existed. Today's press conference, the Department of Defense said ISIS was responsible for this attack. Do I have this wrong? And if I don't have this wrong, what do you think that means?
2: So I think that that's right. You know, that the former president had said that the United States had defeated ISIS, and then they tried to recorrect that by saying had defeated the ISIS caliph- caliphate, which meant the territorial control that ISIS had, not. ISIS as a group. And here, lo and behold, is the reason for that delta between the two things that it's still very much a fighting force that has the ability to conduct uh, such a devastating type of an attack. And that goes to the point I think that also Olivia was making, which is just there are some really bad actors now in this space. The next several days are going to be very difficult. I thought the press briefing by General McKenzie that happened this afternoon was pretty incredible just to see how calm and methodological he was in dealing with a situation under such great stress. But it's so hard to see how this doesn't get worse over the next few days. And in fact, he was talking about that the threat stream is still one in which they are expecting additional attacks. And they've just kind of like priced that in. They understand that. And we're at this weird inflection point in our politics in which this is now the banner under which uh, some are calling for, you know, the next phase of the 20-year war. Ben Sass with a statement so soon, right after the strike, to take a statement like that. CNN, right after the first explosion went off, immediately had on the air H.R. McMaster, you know, who's a strong proponent of, you know, wanting to escalate the conflict in Afghanistan not withdraw. So I think it's going to be very tough to see how Biden um, navigates through this period of the next several days until the end of the month. And then what lies beyond that, because it's also almost impossible to imagine a president not responding with some force to ISIS-K in Afghanistan after this kind of devastating attack, in which right now as we're recording this It includes uh, 12 US troops who have been killed. So I think it's uh, a dramatic moment as we all thought that this is winding down, that there's a lot of pressure pushing in the other direction.
1: One of the Republican talking heads you might see on Fox, not a particularly full head, kind of an empty head, a guy named Todd Starnes, said we should destroy an Afghan city for every American life that was lost, which gives you an idea of the overheated rhetoric And I would just point out, I just finished a column to this effect, which will come out tomorrow. But I will point out that it's precisely that kind of overheated rhetoric that leads to bad reactions and got us into this 20 year war in the first place. And if we're going to learn a lesson from this war, it is that we have to respond coolly. General McKinsey seemed to be, as we're recording this, President Biden is scheduled to speak. I hope that he remains. Focused and does not let the terrorists set the narrative or reset the mission. Kavita, that's tough to do in the politics of the current Washington. Ryan mentioned some people. Marsha Blackburn, you used to be associated with the Senate and are aware of the kind of bright lights we have there. And she's, you know, an especially bright light, called for the impeachment of President Biden and the removal of Secretary of State. Lincoln, secretary of defense, Austin, and for good measure, chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Milley, while there were still bloody bodies lying in the street. It's almost impossible to have a serious discussion about serious things like this in Washington now, isn't
0: it? Oh, absolutely. And I I just wanna say, David, I remember before I met you, I had read it was in one of your it was a foreign policy, maybe an article or I remember you describing because people, you know, Olivia, you've got experience there. I spent time during a year on the border of Pakistan and Afghanistan and I've married a Pakistani. And so it's interesting watching perspectives of what's been unfolding from like Pakistanis who are both there and here. And so all my information is kind of like I'm touching you know parts of this without any direct experience, but I recall during the Obama administration when Gates had left, and I think you were rightfully critical, I'll say then of kind of how he at that time with the at the time it was like a two thousand thirteen or fourteen deadline, and I think you kind of pointed out like there is nothing that we're going to be able to like there's no like going out of that country gently it's just there's just all these kind of bad, bad and worse scenarios. And I think about how, if I recall, one of the worst scenarios was if we could, if we did it abruptly, and you can argue about whether this was as abruptly. And this is, by the way, I, I completely agree with Olivia. I'm not criticizing. I would be stupid to even try to pretend I understand kind of how the administration had to work through this process and come to the decisions that they're still having to come to. But one thing I do know is politics, and it's hard for Biden to walk this back. I think there was never a great scenario to do anything that could have landed squarely in the win column. It just wasn't going to happen. And so few people in the United States understand kind of what the Islamic atmosphere is like right now, but also forecasting what it could look like. You had told me that like having the Taliban there would actually be some stability, knowing who some of these other players are. I wouldn't have believed you and I worked in Pakistan, but I do believe that now. The other part that's happening politically, David, is that you've got an incredibly self-centered public that's also being scared, truly scared about this pandemic, because you're getting booed if you decide to wear a mask. And so if you think about where like the American psyche is right now, it is much easier to go towards whatever looks like it's a fringe or a voice that goes against the government or something that looks like it breaks away from the majority. So the Marjorie Taylor Greens, the Marshall Blackburn's, they all end up appealing to more people because of that dynamic. And that's what's making, I mean, that's what just gets me so sad that we're now in a place where People are so broken about like any sort of majority or community that they're kind of willing to go to these defectors who really Ben sass. Others who really don't even know what they're talking about.
1: No, it's so it's so true. And it's compounded by the fact that a lot of folks in the media are more concerned with their brand than the truth. One of the things that I saw in the wake of this is that there's a reporter who's become very popular in the past two weeks, Larissa Ward of CNN. And her response to the bombing was, it's horrific beyond words. And she's been covering this whole thing with her emotion. You know, and my response was, if it's horrific beyond words, don't say anything. Your job is to come up with the words. Your job is not to tell us how you feel. It's to tell us what you see and what's actually going on there. But a lot of reporters have set that aside. Now, I want to get a little bit deeper into what's happened here. And maybe I'll word it in a slightly provocative way, but, you know, I I trust Olivia will correct me if I overstate it. Terrorists like to go after soft, highly visible targets. The reason that there was such a big, soft, highly visible target in Kabul right now. Well, there were several reasons. And one of the reasons was that, you know, as President Biden has said, you know, uh, President Ghani said, We can't have the evacuation start earlier. The government will fall. And the U.S. didn't push back on that as hard as I think they should. But another reason was that when we could have been getting these people out during the Trump administration, which knew for three years that they wanted to get out and end this. We were doing the opposite because Stephen Miller was killing the program that allowed Afghans to come into the United States. He essentially shut off that pipeline, that avenue. And those people were backed up. And part of the reason there were big crowds around that airport is because Stephen Miller and the Trump administration shut off that pipeline. Am I overstating that, Olivia?
3: That's what led me to to writing a thread about this, right? Because I was watching these crowds and I was watching, I was already starting. I mean, I knew where this was going to go. I knew that the second this started to happen, it was going to be um, twofold. Either people were going to try to claim that Trump would have saved all of them, which is clearly not the case because if he wanted to, he would have been doing that his four years while in office, right? That would have been a focus. And he was told to make it a focus by many. That we should be working on this expediently now. And that it was, you know, many had been in the pipeline for People years.
1: People told Donald Trump, you have to start helping to get the Afghans out of Afghanistan.
3: Yeah, there were memos written about this. There were, I mean, there were cabinet discussions, there were working groups. I mean, we that the whole SIV and the P2s population, um, P2s for Iraq because the SIV expired. Um these were discussions that took place, especially because under the Trump administration, we had the travel ban, the travel restrictions executive order that was launched. And then underneath, under that one, it was also a complete stop and review. I think you know, people kind of, there's so much happened in the Trump administration that I totally get it. Like so many bad things happen that it's hard to keep track, right? So it's like, and I get it because it's hard to, it's hard, like, wait, what that? Oh, that's right, that happened. So, um, So it put a complete, stop to the refugee program for review. And I'll use air quotes on that because then it became a review of making sure that we were going to double check the security checks, which were already significantly cumbersome and a process that's already incredibly challenging. I mean, these people have to get letters from their commander or whoever it is that's going to sponsor them. There's health checks that happen. There is documentation Sometimes very hard given the circumstances they're like that they're working in. So, what I saw firsthand was a complete gutting of this process, whether it was resources, whether it was constant lowering of the refugee ceiling, the cap in the Trump administration, like people forget, it was the lowest it has been ever in the entire history of the program. As a consequence of that, well, people will say, well, we weren't actually getting to that number anyways. We weren't processing them. Well, why weren't we? And when we're having these conversations, so when we're saying, okay, we're going to withdraw from Afghanistan, and people are saying, well, we got to get our translators out of there. And, and when you're seeing Iraqi translators that are still, still waiting today for this pro- process to get their visa, all of that combined leads to the majority of the crisis that you see today when you're having to evacuate now thousands of people because now that we're withdrawing, their lives for sure are at risk and they will be amongst the first ones killed. I mean, right, because they're seen as traitors and they were our allies on the ground. And so I think it's, uh, you know, it was frustrating to see this happen. And then I just wanted to make sure to remind people of the context of what happened during four years under Trump The anti-immigrant, anti-refugee rhetoric that wasn't just rhetoric, but it was calculated manipulation of a system at DHS, at State Department, at DOJ, where there were specific people put in specific roles to ensure that this process got broken.
1: As you guys know, I've been working on a book on this and I've been talking to a lot of people involved in that process. And one of the things that has struck me in those conversations was that this was not a peripheral issue. The people involved in the process of the refugee ban, you know, the Muslim ban and the court follow up to that and so on. Specifically said that getting the people out of Iraq and Afghanistan who have been our allies is essential to this program. And specifically pushed back on the White House's efforts to shut that down for national security reasons. It's one of the reasons they fought it so fiercely. Am I overstating that, Olivia? Because I get an impression from a lot of your colleagues that this was a big deal. It was not a small deal.
3: No, it was a big deal. And look, I will be very, very, very candid with you all right now on for those of us that worked on this topic. We had to watch our backs and we had to be very careful when you would go to bat on this issue. And, like, it's not a hidden secret. I'm sure that my former colleagues are, have seen me come forward on this and be very vocal about it. And I'm sure that they're thinking, yep, she was the refugee girl because people knew that I was in the office of the vice president and I was an ally on this and that I was going to do everything that I could to do my best to try on this issue. But I can't tell you how many times we had. I mean this sincerely. Close to her meetings, strategizing when there was going to be a cabinet meeting on how we were going to approach it, what we thought people were going to raise, and how different departments were going to counter. Stephen Miller. I mean, think about it. This this is this is like an advisor, right? (laughs) Think about that. This is some guy who has no business really dictating most of these things. But that shows you the power that he had when it came to the oval, unfortunately, and that he had the ear of the former president. And he was very calculated in the way he operated. Look, I have seen some of the language, I've saw some of the reports written on refugees and, and this process. And you can, I can actually identify Stephen Miller talking points within it. And that, you know, and I watched Pompeo. Pompeo himself came to him. And why you're secretary of state and you're caving to this individual. But that goes to show sort of how people walked on eggshells around this, this person and how truly dangerous he is. And like, he's still out there advising. And I think it's important for people to know that he still operates on the right wing, still out there advising people that are currently running for higher office So I don't see the sort of influence of this type of personality going away anytime
1: soon. Ryan, I'd be interested in your perspective on this, because you have made a career at Just Security of covering things that kind of get lost in the weeds of this kind of process that are of great consequence. Some of them have been on the, the legal side, but a lot of them, of course, have been on the security side. This strikes me as something of great consequence. This strikes me as a big part of this story. This strikes me as a headline, maybe going back to the days when I was running you know, foreign policy, which is why did Trump turn away our Afghan allies? What, what do you think?
2: Everything you both said resonates and it's my understanding as well as to what was happening. I do want to kind of use a little bit what Olivia said at the end, because that's where I was thinking of doing as well, the segue to what the present threat is. Um, so in some ways, as what Stephen Miller was doing inside the White House, but it's still a present threat. It's the threat of white supremacy. It's the threat of Stephen Miller and his rhetoric. And I, my understanding is this is hand in hand with Steve Bannon today, like what is what is Stephen Miller saying today? So here's a, I'm just gonna read a tweet from Stephen Miller. Today being like in this period with the withdrawal, he said it's becoming increasingly clear that Biden and his radical deputies will use their catastrophic debacle in Afghanistan as a pretext for doing to America what Angela Merkel did to Germany and Europe. And what he's referring to is bringing people from Afghanistan here. And he was on Fox News. He's saying something very similar about how that the purpose is um, to change the demographics in the United States, which plays into the Tucker Carlson rhetoric of the great replacement, this idea that there's an agenda underfoot to change the demographics of the United States. And I think they are capitalizing on the fear that's in the country in some respects. Uh, but what an, an you know incredible thing that they would be capitalizing on this particular moment of humanitarian concern with respect to Afghanistan to continue to promote the very agenda. I think that's, to me, one of the issues that I think has to be at the foreground of a lot of this to me that's part of the reason that I focus on the January 6 attack it's the white supremacist extremist violence and I think it it's a thread that runs through a lot of this what do you think
1: kavita first of all I don't know
0: why anybody needs to even hear from Stephen Miller or why he has not been blocked from Twitter but see this is the insidiousness of Stephen Miller I would argue that someone, with what he has done, actually has been more destructive than Marjorie Taylor Greene's stupid tweets or her idiocy. Because Stephen Miller, unfortunately, is smart enough to be able to just kind of, again, I, I maintain that he's been able to kind of float in the nethers. I have to ask Olivia, just because I know so much about like the intricate bureaucracies of the federal government, what you said really struck me it's not just the Steve Miller's, the Steve Bannon's kind of political appointees or people who are in kind of the SES status. But it sounds like if I hear it correctly, Olivia, there's, well, maybe politicals, but also there might be career people. How do you then take what looks like very purposeful insinuation within agencies and departments? I would imagine there's an aspect of the Biden administration because of the poor transition and then the pandemic that there are still kind of coffers and things that they haven't like lifted under where there are either regs or people promulgating regs or things that are happening. Is that, is that kind of cynical of me or do you you think that's still kind of happening? And I mean, it just dawned on me what, there's no amount of oversight that would even get to it. I don't even know how you would uncover it.
3: I think that's a very accurate assessment. I think that, you know, unfortunately I certainly saw a lot of instances where people who weren't political, people who were at career, people in roles sort of get bullied, but sometimes, I mean, there was a difference. There was those that got bullied through those that got bullied and stood strong and, you know, kind of figured out the system and found the coalition willing to figure out how we were going to navigate this. And then there are those who acquiesced and sort of fell in line. And then um, you realize that they were somewhat like-minded. I think those people still remain today. And so, and that is pause for a concern just in general. And I, I think that is a, a broader conversation. Um, sort of that goes in line with, with what Ryan said as well, right? On what we're seeing here on certain threat streams domestically. And I think that this is one um sort of big umbrella of a problem. And I do think that to Ryan's point, I am increasingly concerned at watching what's happening here, whether, you know, I whether it's COVID and the divisiveness there and what many other right wing people say and the statements made and again, and yeah, like we're watching governors do this, right? And don't get me going on that because I can go on a rant for a good few hours on what's happening there, but whether it's COVID, whether it's Afghanistan, and then all of that sort of driving what DHS just warned about, right? Grievance-based violence and how that is increasing and what that means for the future of our country and the undermining of our democracy, because that is exactly what this is doing. It's just eroding at it. It's creating these narratives that are just scare tactics. But the problem with with it as in an era of disinformation, people are buying into this and they hear it. And it's just creating greater, I think, division and angst on this. And when you're scaring people, even as baseless and factless as it may be, it's still making a huge impact.
1: Yeah, the president of the United States is saying now, Ryan, we will hunt you down and make you pay, we will strike ISIS cave facilities. At a time and place of our choosing. That seems natural. And it also seems consistent with the view that he has long held that our mission in this part of the world is counterterrorism, focused counterterrorism, and that we shouldn't be distracted by from that by nation building and other kinds of impossible goals. What do you think of that reaction?
2: So I guess I have two thoughts. Um, The second one is a little more complicated. The first one is, sounds like when he's saying time and place of our choosing, he might be trying to buy more time in a positive way in terms of just let's focus on the safe evacuation. And then after that point, we can then potentially take direct action. So that's one thought. The second thought, there is a part of the Biden framing that I don't appreciate. And Fred Hyatt has a piece in the Washington Post about this as well. And Blinken has said it too, which is the idea that, so I I definitely understand and I agree, you know, counterterrorism, not nation building in a certain sense, but Biden made a statement that after the defeat of Al Qaeda, what were our interests? There were no interests left in Afghanistan. And Blinken made a similar point about that there were no national interests. And I'm just, I don't like that. Because we're seeing the return of the Taliban, a designated terrorist group, overtake an entire country and threaten what is referred to as gender apartheid. And that's in our national interest. And what Fred Hyatt also said was similar, to not include that in our security interest or our national interest, and then to be turn around and say, and we're, you know, have this democracy promotion agenda. Well, maybe no, you don't, um, if that's not in your national interest. So I think they've got to be. Uh, I think they have got to be more careful about that, and I can understand why they frame it that way with respect to the withdrawal. But it concerns me kind of to no end um, the way in which that must also be heard by uh, women and girls in Afghanistan in a way that I think is um, regrettable.
1: This I don't think has ever happened in the long time that Ryan and I have been doing this. We started working together on this podcast in the Roosevelt administration, but I strongly disagree. I thought Fred Hyatt's op-ed column on this in which he said Biden was making a blunder by not saying that we have a stake in this was completely wrong. Because Biden is saying, you know, we don't have a long-term national interest that warrants an on-the-ground military presence in Afghanistan. He was not saying we don't have an interest in protecting women and girls. What he's saying is that having military on the ground is not the tool to do that. And as it happens, it is not a tool we use to do that in any other country in the world. We did not send troops into Saudi Arabia to get women to be allowed to drive. We did not send troops into the Horn of Africa to stop genital mutilation. Now, you know, if that's going to be the policy, let's have the UN do it. Let's find a multilateral way to go in and advance these things. But really what our tools are, are political and economic and diplomatic. And Biden isn't saying we're not going to use those tools. Quite the contrary. They've already said there is a ton of of Taliban or Afghan money in U.S. banks, a lot of international economic leverage. Let's use that. And I think that there is this conflation of saying. That somehow, because we have some kind of interest there, that means that we should have a permanent military presence there. And I think the past 20 years has proven that's not the right tool. So I get what you're saying, but I just come down on it in a different place. And I'll let Kavita resolve
0: (laughs) No, Do not let me. I, I have such deep respect for the content knowledge that all three of you bring. I look, I am I'm a domestic policy girl and I fully admit it. Here's what I'm going to tell you having worked for years in the Senate with uh, a Senator Joe Biden uh, at the time, I mean it was very clear. I know this sounds crazy, but I couldn't trust someone more to have some sense of like the foreign policy situation and kind of the state. I may disagree with parts of how he's handled it, but I have to have a little bit of faith in the fact that this man for decades has kind of been watching this and his relationship. I mean, I'll be honest, like I know for a fact just from watching him as a senator and kind of Senate foreign relations and then also as the vice president, I mean, he's had a long history with the Taliban and understanding this kind of dynamic nature of, again, I really think that until I spent time in the region, which was just a shadow and a fraction of kind of understanding Islam and just the tensions, it's just too hard to make statements like Fred Hyatt's or anybody's, I'll be honest, it's hard. David, you're one of the few people I'll actually read because you've been been pretty consistent like of how screwed up this has been for a long time and that it's going to be really screwed up and there's no way it'll actually be good. And it's been hard to find anybody that I can kind of read and understand. And I'm putting a lot of faith in Biden because of what I've witnessed over the years. I am going to be described probably by deep state listeners as horribly naive, but I know when to step out of my lane and I don't understand something enough to know that. Let me get back into
1: your lane and switch it into one of the unusual things about you and Olivia is your broad ability to discuss a wide range of issues with expertise. And uh, it's you're nice to say what you said about what I've I've written. It did make me think. By the way, that the first op-ed that I wrote about not being sucked into this trap of overreaction was the second week of October 2001, in which I used the example of the Intifada, and I said, "This is we're going to get caught into something in which overreaction costs us." So it's been 20 years of of doing that. But I want to switch this around a little bit, because prior to today's attack, the Republicans have been jumping on this evacuation and what's going on here a little bit too enthusiastically for my taste, because there are things they want to distract from. It's tragic that 12 people, 12 Americans died today in Afghanistan. 1,408 Americans died yesterday of COVID, they died of bad policies in the most case. Vastly more Americans died today and yesterday in Texas of bad policies than will be killed by these terrorists. And they want to distract from this growing catastrophe In the United States, where we're we're back up in the mid 1000 range every single day. One of the problems I have with the media, the story has been going on for a year and a half. 1400 dead Americans of COVID is not a big deal story anymore. Twelve people killed in this blast is now I'm not minimizing their deaths. I'm not minimizing their sacrifices. But Kavita, something horrible is going on here too.
0: People keep bringing up in the media, like all these children, these children are being hospitalized. And I'm like, if you people didn't find any like cause for pause after Sandy Hook, like I'm not sure what pictures of babies on intubators are gonna, you know, ventilators are gonna help you. I, it doesn't make sense. So I, I agree with you, but I also think that just the public has had it. And I think the Republicans, I have a very good friend who's chief of staff to a Republican on the House side. And it's definitely come up at like the chiefs of staff kind of caucus when they get together and they talk about like, this is not going well because they've got, you know, their own states that won't let them put in mask mandates for schools or even sort any sort of vaccine mandates. And then they're squarely kind of feeling like they've got to do something, but anything they do will get spun and turned around by the far right. And so they're, feeling boxed in. This is a pretty moderate Republican with kind of a very decent reputation across the aisle. And he was like, you're fucked if you do. And you're fucked if you don't. And and I agreed with him. And I said, but your boss has to care and has to come out on the side of I didn't want people to die. I mean, that you can call it whatever you want, a requirement opt out. I don't even know what to say. And he said, I agree with you. He said, but we're all so scared of being called out by Tucker Carlson. I mean, he admitted it. He said, My boss cannot afford to be like the Bill Cassidy, you know, kind of the, the poster child for what the Republican Party doesn't want. And they're all scared of it. And they've all been told, by the way, on the House side and on the Senate side, because I've had same conversations with Senate Republican staff. On the Senate side, they're all being told, stay the course. We can actually, you know, Biden, they actually have said Biden's trying to use the boosters and this announcement and the FDA's um, approval of Pfizer to distract from Afghanistan. We have to stay on course and not let the public. And I said, you're giving the White House way too much credit if you think that Jen Psaki's out there rolling out boosters and you know, the FDA is approving something to distract from Afghanistan. <laughs> I said, You're giving the White House way too much credit. And, and that's what's happening, David. I mean, I, and I'm not saying, no offense to my friends who are working in the White House, but you're giving the White House way too much credit. If you think they had this master plan of today we'll announce boosters at eight months. Monday, we're going to approve Pfizer. Next week, we're going to give children vaccines. You know, like it's, it that's just not what happens. That's not coordinated like that. But That's what's going on in Republican caucus rooms.
1: That's a a really useful insight. We only have a couple of minutes left. Olivia, what's your reaction?
3: No, I think, you know, I think what Kavita said is actually 100% the truth of what's happening, especially on the Republican Party. But I guess my problem with this entire scenario of where the GOP is and where the people continue to go along with the more louder, Extreme voices and Trumpism is at what point then are you going to take a stand? What's it going to take then for you to actually start taking a stand? Because at some point you have to take a stand against the bullies. And it's easier to take a stand when you do it together than alone. So why aren't more people just countering this movement within what's happening with the GOP? Why aren't they? Calling out to Santis and saying, you're killing people and Abbott, you're killing people. And I mean, there's just so many different scenarios. Um, you know, and then I, we watched, we, I mean, we saw some minor calling out of when they come forward and they say, you know, I'm I'm grateful that some of them have actually been telling people to get vaccinated. But we've seen, we saw what happens with some of them where they come forward and then they kind of walk it back. I mean, Trump himself did that in a speech just recently, right? I mean, that was just kind of Typical Trump flip-flopping in the same sentence. But I guess that's what worries me because I just feel like this is getting worse and worse across the country. And when it comes to COVID, we've been in this pandemic for over a year and a half now, I guess. I mean, it feels like longer. But at what point are people going to start to say, okay, I'm not okay with thousands of people dying a day. And at what point are people going to say, yeah, our democracy is actually being shredded by the divisions and the disinformation that's being spread by people in my own party who have a large platform or these networks that have large platforms who continue to put people at risk on a daily basis. And at what point do I take a stand so that somebody doesn't actually show up at the US Capitol and threaten to blow it up like we just saw? that happen. And so I just I guess I'm increasingly frustrated because despite the lack of accountability, at what point will you hold those next to you accountable and why don't you actually come together and take a stand? Like why do you leave people like Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger on their own islands, right? Why aren't you coming together and standing behind them and walking away from this? Probably the answer we all know a lot of it is fear of the base and fundraising and donors.
1: I think that's right. And I, that's why I, I think the threat posed by Trump and the Trumpists is so enormous. Leave it to people to draw their own conclusions. Between three and four thousand Americans died in Afghanistan. 56,012 people have died in Texas so far of COVID, 248 yesterday. 42,731 have died in Florida nine yesterday. More people have died in Texas of COVID than died serving the United States in the Vietnam War. So we need to put the consequences of this in perspective. And that's hard. Media doesn't really like that.
0: And I, and I think it's worth saying 99% of those deaths were in unvaccinated, actually probably ninety nine percent 99.9 were in unvaccinated. Of the deaths yesterday.
1: Certainly. Yes. Yes. Certainly. And of this week. So, Ryan, my last question is this When are you going to come back?
2: <laughs> when you agree with me more? No.
1: I, I agree with you always. I've been agreeing with
2: you for years
1: and then you leave. And now we finally disagree on one thing. Well, look, I mean, I hope you come back real soon. I think Absolutely. it has been a huge pleasure to do this with you, doing this alone with Kavita. It's just not going to be the same. (laughs) Um, Good luck with the things you're doing and come back in a few weeks.
2: Thank you. I will be coming back uh, anytime. Uh, And I've totally enjoyed all of the conversations. And I even said to David privately, I learned so much from him through these conversations. So you won't be able to keep me away.
1: Excellent. And we want to do lots of stuff with Just Security as well. Olivia, we hope you will come back. You're an inspiration i uh, listening to you talk. I realize how much of this book I'm doing has been inspired by work you did and how much I've learned from you and how courageous I think you are day in and day out in the face of this kind of deaf ear the party is turning to reason and conscience. Um, and Kavita, you're great, but everybody tells you that every single damn week. And it's getting a little tired.
0: It's okay. No, no, I'm happy to. But I have to say to Olivia, I, she's not saying it. I know she's received death threats. I know she's had all sorts of horrible things said about her. So I couldn't underscore enough, like just for you to like show up and be able to still kind of speak and speak truth is pretty incredible. I'm, I'm confident a lot more of your colleagues would have had the same death threats, the same types of things, and that would have scared them away. And I wouldn't blame them, by the way. I mean, I, you know, that's how awful things are. So. Thank you. Been a rough week. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I know. No. So you've got friends here. Yeah, we you. know, we know that it thank hasn't
1: you. been easy. We, we we do, and we, we can know. get you a visa into New York City. <laughs> probably. In any event, thank you all so much. Thank you, Kavita. Thank you, Olivia. Especially thank you, Ryan. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And uh, you know, given what's going on out there, stay safe, everybody. Thanks very much. Bye bye.